Today on Ag News Daily. We think that's important. We think it's important to send that signal to the marketplace that, hey, ethanol is here and it's here to stay. It's not going to be shortchanged like it has been over the last three years. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Another Ag News Daily episode here with myself, Delaney Howell, and my co-host, Mike Pearson. Mike, what you been working on today? Well, just keeping an eye on the markets here, we did see the uh, Fed cut interest rates here just about an hour ago at 1 p.m. on uh, Wednesday. Is that what day we are? We're on Wednesday, yes. They're on Wednesday. So Jerome Powell came out. The, uh, the Fed voted to cut rates another quarter of a point, which was right in line with expectations. And um, basically just ran through the same spiel he ran through a month ago when they cut rates. Uh, effective, or two, two months ago, excuse me, when they cut rates for the first time, saying that this is a mid-cycle correction. They are keeping an eye on the impact that these global trade wars are going to have on economic expansion. He said we are continuing to see strong moves in the domestic economy, but there continues to be concerns when we look out around the world and what that might mean for exports and for manufacturing here in the U.S. So this was more of a preventative measure than it was uh, a problem-solving measure, if that makes any sense. Yeah, gotcha. I think that makes sense. Okay. All right. Well, good. So, so that was the that was the news today, and um, didn't didn't see much of an impact here in the agricultural markets, but uh, definitely saw some movement in gold and S and P. So we're we're seeing some things move around, even though it was uh, more or less right along with expectations. Okay. Yeah. How about you, Delaney? What are you working on? Um, I've been brushing up, reading, and doing some research on agricultural super cycles. Good call. Yeah. Good call. Where are we right now, Delaney, in your research? Where do you think we are? Well, there have been four major super cycles or periods, and they're usually spurred by either huge industrial or population growth or some combination thereof. So, I don't know. I think it's going to be interesting because... This whole idea of 2050, the population's going to be, you know, the largest it's ever been by, I think if you add up all the years of population or whatever that statistic is, it's about 10 billion people. Um, So that could cause the beginning of a new super cycle is really that large expansion and rapid growth of underdeveloped or developing countries. So I'd say we're, we're ending a super cycle. Yes. And so that's what I think is the most important thing to keep in mind, looking at history. And, of course, Mm -hmm. history doesn't repeat. You know, we're we're not going to see the same thing ever again, but it does kind of rhyme. And these super cycles, on average, come about every 30 years. So you're right, 2050 certainly seems like a potential time to see this thing peak again. But that doesn't help us when we peaked this last one in 2012, just a short seven years ago. We might have 23 years ahead of us if history is to be uh, to be the guide of, uh, you know, overproduction. Right. I don't know. I just think the interest rates, the globe, I mean, they obviously know stuff about what's going on with the global economy. So I think all those things just add up. They all just factor right. up. So Absolutely. What prompted you to do that research, Delaney Howell? Um, I have a speech coming up next week. And also, I don't know, I just uh, was nerding out and I kind of like kept getting into like, a rabbit hole and I'd find something else and I'm like, oh, I have to research that. So that's what I've been doing the last couple of hours. Well, wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. Glad you're, you're broadening your mind and expanding your horizons. Delaney, that's what it's all about. Absolutely. And speaking of expanding, not in a positive manner, but Mike, do you know one thing that's expanded over in our Asian countries? 
African swine fever. Absolutely. We should have brought this up yesterday because I think it was formally announced on Monday, but South Korea has now tested positive, joining eight other Asian countries and becoming positive for ASF. We know that the uh, border of North Korea had, or the uh, North Korea already has tested positive for ASF, and so they first found this case in South Korea near that border, so likely was transported by, I'm guessing, wild hogs. That would be my guess, but man, they keep that border pretty locked down. I'd be surprised if hogs can get through there, but maybe they can. I've never been to Korea. I have not either. Um, and so it's interesting. The the ASF was discovered on a farm that runs about 4,700 head of hogs, and all those hogs are going to be liquidated, cold. Mm-hmm. And um, now the thought is South Korea should be in a better place to handle the biosecurity and reduce the spread of ASF more so than China. But, you know, I was surprised we didn't see much of a market reaction this week to that news. I know. I was surprised by that, too. Maybe it's going to be a longer-term implication for the hog markets. Possibly. South Korea is the second-largest pork producer in Asia after China. So, I mean, if it does start to really spread, it could have a big impact. That it could. Well, speaking of having a big impact, we've talked quite a bit about the small refinery exemptions and what that has done to the ethanol industry. It was reported earlier today that the Siouxland Energy Cooperative, excuse me, uh, a farmer-owned ethanol company in northwest Iowa there at Sioux Center, said they're going to idle their plant because, specifically because, the small refinery exemptions granted to those oil refiners have undermined the RFS and they have reduced ethanol demand by 4 billion gallons. Uh, the folks at Siouxland said they hope that once the RFS issues are addressed, which could be in this deal that we discussed yesterday uh, between President Trump, uh, Sonny Perdue, and the oil industry, um, maybe that would be enough to help them fire back up the plant. But for right now, this makes the 17th ethanol plant nationwide that has closed or at least idled production over the last few months. And to add on to the ethanol SRE news, I suppose you could say, I chatted a little bit yesterday about Governor Reynolds and her meeting last week with President Trump. Well, we saw Senator Chuck Grassley again make some comments in regards to the SRE waivers, and he basically is holding back his support, said he will not support President Trump, he will not cheer until he sees it on paper, or sees this supposed deal on paper. He said, we want 15 billion gallons to be 15 billion gallons. They want enforcement, and so he doesn't sound like he's too optimistic about what's coming down the pipeline. No, he doesn't. That's, That's too bad. It is. Um, Well, actually, I want to circle back to what we were talking about before with African swine fever. Delaney, if I could for a second. Um, One of the things that we we talked about uh, last week with uh, with our good veterinarian friend is how this disease could spread. And one of the concerns was that there just hadn't been a whole lot of research done on how ASF can spread outside of tainted meat. Um, And, you know, we we discussed that, I believe it was on Friday. And... um, 
one of the potential ways that we could see ASF wind up on the shores here in either North America or well, in North America or South America is through the transportation of feed and feed ingredients. And now there has actually been a study completed. This was a study performed at Kansas State University in coordination with uh, SHIC, the Swine Health Information Center, that they looked at, and I'm going to kind of jump into some science here, which is out of my wheelhouse, but we'll give it a shot. Um, her latest study is called The Half-Life of African Swine Fever Virus in Shipped Feed. And what she found was that the virus can survive a 30-day transoceanic voyage in contaminated plant-based feed and feed ingredients. So Ooh. theoretically, this could get here. Basically what that science jargon is saying is it could – be present in animal feed for up to 30 days, meaning if it was shipped here from other countries that were infected, it could be still a live virus within the animal feed. Am I understanding that correctly? Absolutely. And, you know, the big concern is China. We get a lot of our minerals and feed additives only from China. So we could see it certainly shipped uh, shipped across through there. Wow. That is uh, quite the mic drop, if you will. It is. The good news is that with this additional information and with this new knowledge as to how the virus would perform in that kind of a setting, um, the USDA will be using a lot of this research to enhance its uh, border protocols and its inspections. So, you know, now we've got more information. Now we've got more tools with which to fight the virus. Absolutely. More tools is always a positive. And since you're uh, since you brought up China there, I want to Kind of give our listeners an update on the trade front because there's a couple headlines I think everybody should be aware of. The first is that uh, there are some Chinese folks that are scheduled to arrive in Washington, D.C. today to begin working yet again on official level trade talks that are planned here for early October. Another little tidbit of trade news is President Trump is planning to meet with not just Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe next week at the United Nations General Assembly, but also with the Prime Minister of India. I'm not going to even try and pronounce his name, but they will be meeting on Sunday. And I think that really this other piece of news is very timely as well. U.S. lawmakers, about 40 different, 40 plus lawmakers of Congress have urged President Trump to really focus on those trade relations with India, because back in June, the U.S. ended its preferential trade treatment for India, and which basically allowed duty-free entry for up to $5.6 billion worth of annual exports to the U.S. from India. And Congress, these Congress folks, sent a trade, sent a trade-focused letter to U.S. Representative Trade, U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer saying that U.S. industries are actually being harmed by this because of jobs, the supplies that they were receiving from India, and saying that it's it's really hurting U.S. more than it's hurting India at this point in time and encouraged to fix that or figure out some sort of, I guess, compromise, if you will, between U.S. Some and India. Some kind of deal. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see if uh, see if any of that actually gets done. Yes, we will. Well, Delaney, we we did have an interesting day in the markets, but do you have any other news before we jump into that and an interview with uh, our good friend from our good friend, Bruce Gorder? I do not have any other news for today, Mike. 
All right. Well, let's see where the markets close. We had mixed trade here in the grains. Corn was up, bean was beans were down, and wheat was up in the corn market. The Dees was up three and a quarter cents at three seventy one and a quarter, with the March up two and a half to finish at three eighty two and a half. Soybeans, both November and January, were down a nickel, with November finishing at eight eighty eight and three quarters. The January down nine oh two and a quarter. In Chicago wheat, the December was up five and a quarter cents at four eighty nine and a half, with the March contract up a nickel even at four ninety five and three quarters. Jumping over to the world of livestock, we've got green all down the screen here. In the October live cattle contract, they climbed $1.02.50 at $137.50. December up 85 cents, finished at $106.15. And in feeder cattle, the October was up $1.10 on the day at $138.40. November up $1.25, finishing at $136.30. And in lean hogs, that October contract up 82.5 cents at $69.92.50. The December up 12.5, finished the day at $67.80. And of course, we can't forget about our friends in the dairy industry. The Class 3 milk contract has been extremely volatile all week long, and today was no exception. September contract was only down two cents. It finished at 18.27. However, the October dropped 32 cents to close at 18.67. Without further ado, let's throw it over to our good friend Bruce Gorder and hear his interview for today's podcast. Last week, a group of Midwestern lawmakers and officials of the ethanol industry met a couple of times with the president and White House staffers on several issues related to ethanol and the furor over some of those decisions. Troy Bradenkamp is the executive director of Renewable Fuels Nebraska. He was there and gave me this report. All right, Troy, I uh, got to be involved with a meeting with the president here in, in Washington, D.C. recently. Who was involved on the ethanol side? We've had a couple of meetings with the president this week regarding ethanol. Uh, the first meeting was with uh, companies, uh, major companies, major ethanol uh, manufacturers, uh, meeting with uh, White House staff. Uh, once they realized that our position is pretty clear, that we just want them to follow the law and uh, make sure that we have 15 billion gallons of ethanol in the fuel mix on an annual basis as they are required to do by law, once they figured that out, then they realized that um, we weren't going to be changing our minds. So that led to a meeting on Thursday at the White House with what we call the principals or the uh, members of Congress, mostly U.S. senators, uh, ag-based, that are pro-ethanol. It included Senator Fisher and Senator Sass of Nebraska, Ernst and Grassley of Iowa, Rounds and Thune of South Dakota, I know that uh, Roy Blunt of Missouri was in there, and I might be missing a couple of them, but they went in unified with that message that we just want them to follow the law. If they're going to be giving out small refinery exemptions, as they have in the past, there is a provision and a requirement for them to reallocate those gallons. And there haven't been, they have not been doing that. So on one side of it, they've been adhering to the law, with the small refinery exemptions. On the other hand, they have not been reallocating those those gallons. They've added up to almost 5 billion gallons at this point. What we're saying moving forward is that if you're going to continue to give these small refinery exemptions, let's put a method together that at least keeps ethanol's number whole at 15 billion gallons. We think that's important. We think it's important to send that signal to the marketplace that, hey, ethanol is here and it's here to stay. It's not going to be shortchanged like it has been over the last three years. Uh, we have built out an industry in that 15 to 16 billion gallon range. Once you include export markets, 
we could do a heck of a lot more on the corn side, but that's what's in place right now. And so we need to make sure we have a market for those 15 or 16 billion gallons. Part of that is in that renewable fuel standard number of 15 billion. So when you, on an annual basis, as they have over the last three years, told us, sure, you can have 15 billion gallons, but we're going to take 1.3 or 1.4 or 1.5 billion gallons back through these small refinery exemptions, that puts us down to 13 and a half. And that's the reason why we're starting to see margins get so tight that plants are being idled. Uh, we're up to 17 plants across the United States that have been idled uh, due to just the tight margin situation. Uh, and if things don't change, if this policy doesn't change in Washington, we're estimating another 20 to 30 plants across the United States having to be idled by the fourth quarter of this year. So um, that would be a quarter of our entire ethanol plant fleet. And so that's 25% of production. It's obviously 25% of corn demand that has been running through ethanol plants that would not be. So it would just have a very devastating impact to the entire uh, ag complex uh, if that was to happen. Is the president and the White House aware of the scope of the uproar out here in farm country about the SRE situation? I think they're beginning to become more aware, and in particular the president himself. Unfortunately, um, it is my opinion that the president has surrounded himself uh, with people that may not be sharing with him the entire story of what's going on out here um, for various reasons. And he has been hearing this directly from some of our greatest proponents, uh, Ambassador Branstad had a meeting with him two weeks ago, and from what I understand coming out of that meeting, uh, the president was shocked to hear what the Midwest papers and the stories that are coming out with, with where uh, the corn farmers at and where the ethanol producers are at. Um, and I think that got the ball rolling because the president said flat out, we got to figure out a way to uh, make sure that I'm taking care of the corn farmer and the ethanol producer. So that's what's really gotten this whole package concept put together um, and got that ball rolling. Uh, so I'm hoping that we're able to break through even the barriers that we're seeing within that White House uh, and get this message directly to the president that he needs to do this. Uh, it's only fair. It's only right to give us our, our gallons. And if he does that, I think he will be um, pleasantly surprised with the reaction he will get from uh, not only the Corn Belt, but from the ethanol uh, producers of, of this country that would agree that he is indeed behind us, as he's been saying for the last three years. Did uh, the topic of USMCA come up? We did. We talked a lot about uh, export markets. Uh, clearly, that is another thing that would help ethanol and obviously all grains uh, in the U.S. Um, we talked a lot about USMCA. Um, to various offices. Uh, I spent more time probably in Tennessee congressional offices uh, than I did in Nebraska congressional <laughs> offices. But, you know, our folks are solid, and so you got to go talk to those that will make a difference in terms of votes. So, uh, and a lot of them were definitely in support of uh, USMCA. Um, it seems to be more of a partisan issue at, at this point, uh, falling down on kind of partisan lines. Uh, but Almost um, almost to the person, people saw the value and the need for a USMCA. Some groups have hang-ups with various small components, um, and so they were trying to say that might be a reason why we can't support it, but if I think they looked at the package uh, overall, it would be something that, that needs to be supported and needs to be passed. 
you know, for us uh, in the ethanol in- industry, Canada and Mexico mark uh, two potentially burgeoning markets for us. Uh, I know Canada has been looking at a 10% blend. I know that Mexico is needing to do something from an air quality perspective. Um, they like our ethanol, uh, but they use MTBE right now instead of ETBE or ethanol. So mm-hmm. uh, we're trying to make that change down, down there. We've been meeting with their uh, major cities. Uh, Mexico City would be obviously the main component to, to get them to accept ethanol. And once that happens, I think Mexico becomes a huge market. But USMCA would obviously help move that along. Lastly, we, we spent a lot of time talking about China. And obviously, China is a market that was there in 2017 for ethanol. We were growing that market. Uh, we sent over 300 million gallons of ethanol to China in 2017. Uh, then the trade conflict started. Um, the tariff situation went back and forth. Um, China eventually moved our tariff from 25% to 70% on ethanol going into China. And that has dried up all ethanol sales uh, directly to China since about mid-2018, and we haven't seen a drop go in in uh, 2019. So that's a market we have to get back. Uh, I firmly believe China could be over a billion gallons of U.S. ethanol uh, if we can get past these uh, trade barriers and these tariffs. And, And so we sent that message loud and clear as well that that um, the trade uh, situation has to improve and it has to improve soon. And I think that on top of getting some right signals coming out of the White House on um, the uh, renewable fuel standard and adhering to the gallons that are required in that, I think that will go a long way in riding the ship in terms of where what we're seeing within the ethanol complex today. That's Troy Bradenkamp. He's the executive director of Renewable Fuels Nebraska. And for Ag News Daily, I'm Bruce Gorder. Well, thanks to Bruce, uh, as well as Troy there from Renewable Fuels Nebraska. Always some great stuff coming out there from Bruce. Absolutely, and we've got great stuff coming out every day, so listeners, be sure to follow us. If you missed an episode, you can find it on our website. Just go to agnewsdaily.com. Take you to our home there at the Global Ag Network. You can follow us and several of the other podcasts that are all tied into the network, or you can follow us and interact with us online. Check us out on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're there. Just search for Ag News Daily, and we shall appear as if by magic. Delaney Howell, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. Thank you.